0: weeks. It's nice to be home. Not sure whether I'm awake or asleep. I think this, for one thing, this weather kind of makes you uh, want to lay down and nap. It's, uh, it's very pleasant with this light rain falling it's combined with some jet lag. It's kind of a different world, but uh, be that as it may, it's nice to be here and nice to see everyone. Well, can't see everyone. Some of you are on the telephone line, but Appreciate that you're there. We have a new moon Bible study coming up Wednesday evening. Wednesday evening, 7 o'clock for new moon. Means we're getting closer and closer to Passover season. In fact, Purim is coming up on the 20th and the 21st. Ironically or strangely or unusually, I guess, it happens to fall right on this spring equinox, the 20th and 21st of March. So, I'm looking forward to that. Well, let's get back to 1 Corinthians. Last time I spoke, we, were in, uh, <clears throat> we did chapter 12. Obviously, they had all kinds of problems going on there in the Corinthian church. Paul got into that at the beginning of the book. Uh, a lot of racial difficulties, a lot of people couldn't uh, seem to get along with each other. And in this particular chapter of 12, he talks about it some more, that there are all different kinds of people, different kinds of gifts and abilities, uh, different personalities, and even in the ministry there would be different uh, administrations, and operations, doing things differently. Uh, and it's hard to put together a lot of people and have them get along with each other, given all those differences that we have. But then he points out very clearly that we're one body, and we have to get along as a body does, all the parts getting along with each other. Because if you have some parts that don't agree with other parts, uh, things don't work too well. Uh, sometimes I'm a little that way in the morning. I get up and stagger to the kitchen to find some coffee, and uh, all my body parts don't seem to work together too well. Uh, so I'll stumble or drop something or kick something, or uh, just uh, it's not, my, my mind's telling me it needs to do this. My body is saying, I'm not supposed to be up yet. What are you doing to me? Or something of that nature, I don't know. But uh, everything has to be coordinated in order for things to work well. And when you have some body parts resisting other body parts, that just doesn't work. So he was saying that Christ, in verse 18 of 12, has set the members, every one of them, And that means individually and specifically in the body as it has pleased Him. So, wherever you see someone in God's church, truly in it, God has put them there, and He's put them where He wants them. So, if we do not like what another part of the body is doing then we are actually fighting with Christ because he put them there where he wanted them. So we have to understand that. And when he made the human body, and that's the example that Paul uses, he put all the parts where he wanted them to look like him in his image. He could have made the human body a lot differently than he did. You can witness nature in that. There are all kinds of different animals, and uh, they're built differently, a lot of them. They're not the same. Not every animal has a trunk like an elephant, uh, just mostly elephants. <laughs> and there are a few others that have something similar, like the tapir in South America and so on. But essentially, God made us as he wanted us to be and placed us where he wanted to place us. Then he goes on down and talks about the different gifts and the different abilities and how God has put some in the body as teachers and preachers and apostles and prophets and so on, and others he hasn't. So we had a mad scramble in worldwide for decades and decades to see who could be deacons and elders and deaconesses and prophetesses and whatever else they wanted to be. Or apostles, and since it broke up, there are many who've made themselves into apostles The Christ didn't make into that. So, all of this jostling for position and climbing the uh, governmental ladder and so on created a lot of confusion, did it not? And we all witnessed that, we all experienced it, uh, because we weren't happy with wherever it was that God put us and how he placed us. So we scrambled, and had we really comprehended and understood and been converted in the way that we should, we would have realized, hey, it's better to sit here in the lower chair and wait, do whatever we can do, and maybe God himself will put us in a different place someday. Maybe he'll exalt us. He says, abase yourselves and you will be exalted, exalt yourself and you will be abased. So, we had a culture whereby everybody, I won't say everybody, but generally, people were trying to exalt themselves into a higher position that they felt they deserved or ought to have or whatever. And uh, it created all kinds of problems. Instead of saying, hey, I'll just be what I am, I'll be here, I'll serve, I'll help, I'll give, and if God wants me in a different position or place, he'll put me there. But that's not the way human nature works. It wasn't working in the Corinthian church the way it ought to have been. It wasn't working anywhere in the church the way it ought to have been. And it wasn't working in worldwide the way it was supposed to. It got blown apart. And now it's not working in the scattered places the way it ought to. Because Satan doesn't change. And human nature doesn't change. Our nature, from Adam and Eve on down, has been the same ever since. We want what we want. We want it now. Uh, we have to be trained and taught from children, from little babies, what we should have and shouldn't have, when we should have it, when we shouldn't have it, and what we should have and what not to have. And it's hard for us to learn, because as babies, we started out by using what tools we had. We didn't have a lot of tools. We had a cry or a scream. We could kick our feet. We could, uh, well, that's pretty much it. So kids today still kick and scream and cry and wail to get what they want, because that's All that's in their toolbox. So parents then give in to that, and the kid becomes what you'd call spoiled. And what you do with fruit or vegetables that get spoiled is you throw them out. You can't throw babies out, so you've either got to figure out how to unspoil them and get them to act decently, or you've got to live with a child that is almost impossible to live with. Which is what most parents in our country today are doing. Uh, I happened to see a family the other day. It was just, it was marvelous to watch them. It was uh, some native uh, Fijians, I think they were. But the dad was obviously in charge, and he talked to his sons. They were just little bitty kids. And they responded to him, and they called him Daddy Lion, and then they growled like a fierce lion. But you can see they were very endeared to him and just loved him to pieces. And and with that, you also have a very good mother. Uh, I mean, the dad stood out in that sense uh, because men don't much anymore. But without a very patient, kind, loving, uh, disciplining mother, they couldn't have been the way they were. But it was just amazing to watch those two little kids and how they do what they were told. And then contrast others I saw (laughs) who would do nothing they were told and uh, were just frustrating to be around. You can see the parents are just exasperated all the time because the kids are out of control. So... You have to work diligently from the time a kid is very small to have any impact on his human nature. That selfishness, that me first, is in us, and it's in us from birth. You can modify it a little bit. You can teach them certain ways to be, but you do not change the basis of the nature It is only with the Spirit of God dwelling in us that we have a chance to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, where our reactions become God's reactions instead of our reactions. People can try and use great amounts of willpower, but you can only modify a human being so much without the Spirit of God. It's very, very difficult to do. So here Paul was dealing with human nature and trying to get them to see, first of all, the importance of working together so that the body was coordinated and could actually accomplish something without all parts of it doing their own thing and going their own way. So he says he's he set us where he wants us. Be content. Uh, He also said then that he sent us teachers to guide us, to lead us, to show us the way, and that we were to uh, respect what he had done there as well. Their part of the body and what they are to do. Then he comes on down and he says, verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Obviously not, when you have that many different... Uh, functions in the body they can't all have the exact same function so they can't all be all of these do all have the gifts of healings or speak with tongues do all interpret can they understand what's being said or some interpret for them when you're using different languages so he says we got a problem here people now what he says you can want some of these positions you can want to be a different part of the body You can want to have a different function or different gifts. But he says, covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I to you a more excellent way. So it's not wrong to desire to have certain gifts from God. Uh, Gifts of healing or so on would be one that would be wonderful uh, so that people could quit hurting and aching and feeling bad. And we're going to have more of that in the future. God has promised it, but in the meantime, we're dealing with what we are, and we're trying to come together and worship God as a unit, close together, Uh, and he says, it's okay to desire certain gifts that come from God, yet I show you a more excellent way. So, put that aside, he said, and here's something that's better than that. You can try to be this, you can try to be that, but there's something that is better than that. This is a very famous chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, uh, because it speaks primarily about love. And that is the more excellent way, because we can... You can have a corporation or a business and everybody has different functions, but very frequently there are politics and all kinds of problems going on within any company that has more than one uh, employee or more than one person, and even when you have a company that only has one person, they argue with themselves, Uh, you know, I, I said the other day, I said, People might have trouble getting along with me. Well, I have trouble getting along with myself. (laughs) You know, I don't like myself a lot of times. So, what can you expect? There's There's a better way than the way that we are. So then he goes into detail about it. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men, various languages... It has always impressed me when I run across somebody that speaks five, six, seven, eight languages. That's beyond my grasp, beyond my capacity to, well, maybe with a lot of study and so on, I could have, but I mean, any of us can learn other languages if we put our heart and mind to it, but some people have a proclivity for it. And they pick up a language like you pick up a book, uh, it seems and have such an incredible capacity for something like that. Dr. Hay was, you know, some of you remember him, was our so-called leading scholar in the church. and He'd tell us that we needed to go study something. Well, where do you find that? Well, it's in the library, and it's written in ancient Persian, uh, he'd say. But he says, uh, you'll pick it up. I said, yeah, I might pick the book up, but that's all I'd get picked up. Uh, I'm going to read ancient Persian, yeah, not in this lifetime. But he expected you to go do that. (laughs) Of course, I never even tried, I knew better. It's just the way it was. So he spoke quite a few different languages, or he could read many, many languages, some of them ancient languages, because they were somewhat similar, and he could pick that up. And he used that ability. Now, here's an interesting thing to me. I was thinking about it this morning or yesterday, whenever it was. Very, very intelligent man. And he tried to write a compendium of world history, uh, which there there was a goal and a purpose behind it, which I didn't probably even really grasp at the time. I thought he was just trying to piece history together. No, the point was, he was trying to put all the genealogies of of, uh, ancient Egypt together in such a way as to be able to tell where the time was. To know when creation was and be able to trace man's history year by year straight on through for what purpose? To find out when the end was. That's what the whole effort was about. So he'd come to class, and he's talking about some pharaoh I couldn't pronounce the name of, and some dynasty, and he'd start in explaining about that pharaoh. And he thought we understood what he was talking about, and we had no idea what century or anything else that he was discussing. And he spent years and years working on a big thick book called Volume 1 of the Compendium, and I think there came out a Volume 2, in which he was trying to get all this explained. Now, he finally realized that all that study and all that work amounted to nothing, that he had not been able to figure it out. Those regimes or those uh, kingdoms in Egypt, some of them were... At the same time, two different pharaohs, three different pharaohs, some overlapped. So you never could go through all that morass and figure out a timeline, which was what the whole point was. Because we wanted to know when the end was. Was it going to be in 1975, or was it going to be in 82, or when was it going to be? Now, we've... All worked on some of that in a certain amount of futility over the years. But understanding all the tongues of men and being able to read all those languages and put all that ancient history together, he never could come up with solid answers. I think we got some solid answers now. I think it's very clear that the 6,000 years ends uh, in time cycles, after Christ established when the time cycle of the 50-year time cycle was there in Luke 4. becomes clear when 2,000 years from Christ is. And that being the case, all you have to do is take that same year and count back 4,000 years, and you know when creation was. It's really, really simple. You don't have to have all these tongues and languages and all this knowledge to figure it out. You have to wait for God to show you. <laughs> It's that simple. So he couldn't figure it out, even with all those tongues of men. So how much good did that do? Well, to finish that story, there came a point when he told us, you might as well throw the compendium away. Just throw it away. He says, it's worthless. I couldn't figure it out. After all that. That, that wasn't somebody else saying you ought to throw his book away. That was him saying it. He knew it wasn't right. And I'm not still lugging a copy of it around. Thank you. So, you can go through all that. And even if you had tongues or languages of angels. I've never had an angel speak to me that I know of. I've had demons speak to me, but not angels. And the demons spoke usually in English, because they probably know all languages. And uh, they can speak English quite well. Now, sometimes they mutter and so on and so forth, but they can speak very clearly when they wish. But they're not speaking in demonese or angelese at that time. they speak in Englishese. So I don't know what the tongues of angels and the languages of angels are. But if I could, and didn't have love, what does he say? I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. So, what, what have you gained, if you could speak all languages and not have love? And I think to use Satan and the demons there is a very good example, because they know all that, and yet they will never have love. Their goal and purpose is to destroy all mankind, uh, to put us down, to find fault with us in any way they can, to find anything possible that they can accuse us of and take it to our Father in Heaven. That's their goal, and that's their purpose. So they know all the languages of angels. They were angels. So all the languages that the two-thirds faithful angels No, they know. Now the faithful angels still have love and they protect us and help us and strengthen us in ways that we don't even know or discern, I'm sure. But Satan and his demons are always there to destroy us and they have a better command of all the languages of the universe than any of us even begin to grasp. And what have they become? they become a problem, a sounding brass and a tinkling symbol in the whole universe. They make a lot of noise. You know, you can play a brass instrument if you know how to do it right, and it can be beautiful and lovely and soothing and inspiring and incredibly uh, emotional music can be. And yet if you don't know how to play it, and you make bang on it and make lots of noise... Nobody wants to listen. So, brass that you pound on, or a tinkling cymbal, not one that's making music, but just making noise, is what you are if you don't have the love of God. So, all our study of language or even gifts that God might give us in tongues in the future so that we might understand people who are coming from different parts of the world, will mean nothing if we don't love them. You know, maybe you can speak Swahili and they come and you say, okay, I speak your language, be you warmed and filled. And you don't give them anything to warm them and fill them, then what good did knowing the language do? Then do you a bit of good. So we are here to serve and to help and to love, and God is going to give us, hopefully, chance to do that very soon. And maybe we will have learned enough that we can truly love them and not look down upon them because they're of a different uh, race, different language, different culture, different customs, and they have to unlearn a lot of things. Yet, probably all of them will have been part of God's church, I think, so they will have a certain amount of knowledge. But, These people had a certain amount of knowledge too, but they couldn't get along with each other. They just couldn't do it. So he's trying to tell them here how to do it. And it's written for us so that we might learn how to do it better. Verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains if I don't have love, it means nothing. I'm nothing. Now, if we came, somebody came in who had the kind of faith that is required to remove mountains and move them around, I think we'd be pretty impressed, wouldn't we? That's a pretty impressive feat. What if you understood all prophecy? You understood it all in great detail and had no you, you knew everything that was going to happen exactly when it would happen exactly how it would happen exactly who it would happen to you could give the dates you I mean you knew it all what good does it do if there isn't love behind it to help us be better representatives of Christ to be more like Christ so that we live in peace happiness and harmony that's what it's all about. God's, God's universe right now is not living in peace and in harmony. There are one-third of the angels and Satan himself who are still creating all kinds of havoc on this earth, and they're creating a certain amount of havoc in the universe and at God's throne because God still allows Satan... To go before him and address him at his throne and accuse us. That's his function. I think that's probably, well, I don't know whether I can say this, I don't know, but that might be the only reason he allows him to go there. Is because God wants us to become God someday, and Satan wants us all destroyed. So God is willing to listen to all of Satan's complaints about us, every accusation he can come up with about us, and then God can say to him, My son died for those sins. Why are you accusing these people? They're asking forgiveness. They're asking for the blood of Christ to cover their sins, whatever they might be, right? Every one of us does that. So God has an absolutely perfect, simple answer for Satan. He doesn't have to go into yours or my psyche to to try to determine exactly why we did what we did, when we did it, who we did it to, what our purpose, what our plan was, what our motive was. God doesn't have to go into that with Satan. It doesn't have to be that complicated. All he has to say is, The blood of my son sitting here at my right hand covered that. Any more questions? Any more problems? No? So what does Satan do? He comes barreling back down here to find something else we may have done. And he has his demons here watching all the time and probably confers with them. If he didn't see what we said, thought, or did... uh, Then he'll find out and he'll take it back up there. Now this is getting really tiresome to God. Just like what we're doing down here becomes very tiresome to him. He got so tired of it in Noah's day that he wiped out most of mankind. He's getting tired of it enough today that he is about to wipe out all mankind. Now he gave Noah how long? about 100 years, to build an ark. That's interesting, isn't it? Stop and think about that a minute. How long has he given the end-time church to build an ark? About 100 years. From 1926-27 to probably around 2026-27 is 100 years. And at the end of this preparation time, mankind... Is basically going to be destroyed, except for a very few who will live on to establish the millennium. Uh, I don't remember exactly how many years it was there, but it was that's pretty pretty close, approximate of how long he gave Noah. I'm going to go back there and look at that just for for the for the interest because that that thought had not ever come to me. Uh, Where is it here? It says that. Build an ark. Make it this long. My eye is not seeing it. Does anybody else see it there? 17th day of the month. Rain 40 days and 40 nights. Somewhere it says it. The six hundred and first year in the first month, waters were dried. Anyway, it was about a hundred years, so uh, he's given us about the same amount of time here at the end. And when it's done, it's going to all be over. <clears throat> so Satan, God's getting tired of it, and he's getting tired of Satan coming in because it's not His will that the heavens be disturbed by Satan in his presence. But he has allotted a certain amount of time. He gave Satan 6,000 years. He gave man 6,000 years. And Satan and man haven't gotten it right yet. Therefore, God will intervene again. He'll kill most people and start over, and he's going to get it right. So his will will be done. But you know, God is a very patient being, and he does not impose his will until the time is right for that will to be imposed. Could he kick Satan out today of his throne and not let him back? Yes, he's already defeated him, and Christ defeated him in the battle that they had after the fast. So he can be kicked out today. And it's God's will that there be absolute peace and harmony at His throne and in the universe and on this earth. That's His will. But He's working it out over a prescribed plan and procedure that has to be gone through in order to accomplish His purposes. Now, He could cause absolute peace by binding Satan and the demons now and simply destroy every man and woman and child, every human being on earth. If Satan were contained and mankind were gone, there would be peace. Right? God can do that. He has complete power over life and death or imprisonment. What's the deciding factor here? God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son after 4,000 years so that we might save us from ourselves and from Satan. Now there is the love of God. It is not His will that it be the way it is, and He will only allow it to be the way it is for a certain time, and then it will change. And we, if we are not willing to change and come to have the desire for the kind of peace and love and harmony that God has, we will simply not be there. If we do not come to have his love, we will go into the lake of fire and die. That's just the way it's going to be. Because he will have peace and harmony and love, and he will not have fighting. He will not have hurt feelings and people offending and being offended. It's just not going to exist. It's going to be gone. Satan will be bound forever, and humans will either be changed or burned. We will either come to have the love of God or we will not. <clears throat> so he's saying it's a futility to think that you can get somewhere by having tons of men or know all prophecy or understand all the mysterious things. Now, we've learned over time different mysteries. In fact, Herbert Armstrong wrote about the greatest mystery, and that was that we become God. That was a very mysterious thing, and is to all the churches and religions of the world. They don't understand that that's why we were put here to this day. But we do, because God caused him to understand a mystery. But you know, one day that mystery is going to be cleared up, the first resurrection, just a couple chapters ahead of us here in First Corinthians. That mystery will all be... Understood. Prophecy will have all been fulfilled, so having known that, didn't gain you anything eternal, did it? Uh, You'll know all the mysteries of God then, so that'll be gone. Won't be a necessity anymore for someone to say, well, I understand the mysteries better than you do. And mountains won't need to be moved anymore. When Christ returns, he's going to move them where they need to be, whether it be governmental mountains or physical mountains. Uh, probably both, will be switched around. The earth is not in harmony right now. Uh, It was divided in the days of Peleg from being one continent into seven and other islands scattered around (coughs) because mankind could not live in peace and harmony. The languages were divided in the days of Nimrod because man could not live in peace and harmony. And so God scattered them over the face of the earth. Now he's going to come back and fix all that. So there won't need to be any mountains moved anymore. What is left that needs to be? won't need faith because you'll be in the kingdom. Faith is what? Trust that you shall be. Trust in God that he can do what he said he would do. Well, once he's done it, you don't need faith anymore. So all these things that we desire won't amount to anything. But what will we still need? Love. We'll still need that. Because without love, harmony and peace will not continue. So the only thing that we desire today that will be required then is love. And what is love? This is the love of the God, that you keep His commandments. And those are summarized in two parts love god more than anything in the universe and love each other as much as we love ourselves not more than but as much as and for us to love another human being as much as we love ourselves is a very rare commodity indeed and even if we achieve it in part part of the time <coughs> It's difficult for us to achieve it with everyone at all times. Now, Paul even said, for, for some, somebody might even be willing to die. That's pretty rare, but there have been times when someone would, was willing to take the bullet, was willing to die for someone else. And you see that with uh, husbands and wives sometimes where they love each other enough that they would be willing to die for their partner. I had that at one time, and it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. But did I love everybody, or did my wife love me the same amount that we loved everybody else? No. I doubt if I would, I doubt in my lifetime I have ever been to the point where I would have been willing to die for anybody on earth. There's some people on earth that would just be really hard to decide that I think I'll die for that person. You've probably met a few. Or a multitude. Or you've heard of them. There are some pretty nasty characters out there. And would you die for them? I think we have a way to go. (laughs) We might once in a while find somebody that we would be willing to die for if it seemed to be the thing to do. But Christ is the only one and his Father who loved everybody enough that he was willing to die for everybody. Now that's the kind of love that God wants us to come to have. So that everybody that is left alive in the universe, we love with all our heart. Because then we, we will become God, and we're to love God more than anything. So then we are to love each other more than anything. I think that the love that he requires of us at this point, to love each other as we love ourselves, will be surpassed by his greater love, that means we love everyone equally and more than ourselves. He isn't requiring that of, of us yet. But Christ had to love everyone on this earth more than he loved himself. Have we thought about that? Every criminal, every pervert, every queer, every anything that's ever walked this earth, He loved them more than he loved his own life. Now there's our example. And how easily do we get upset and offended at each other? He says, do not take offense and do not give offense. Wow. If we could just live up to that one. So all these other things that you can name, that people have desired, which he named before in this chapter and, and before, they don't amount to anything unless we really love each other. We can't get along unless we love each other. People in the universe cannot unless they love each other. Satan came to the point he loved himself more than he loved God, and he got in trouble. If we love anything on this earth more than we love God, we are in trouble then we have to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. That means you have to, that means you have to love your neighbor an awful lot. <laughs> you know, you, you really do, to love them as much as you love yourself. That's, that's the minimum requirement. And though I bestow, verse 3, all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and don't have love, it profits me nothing. Now, there are people, have been in the past, who for whatever their cause was, were willing to die. There are people whose cause is to, to spread uh, their religion around the world. And they're willing to die to spread their religion. They're willing to blow themselves up to spread their religion. And to get rid of your religion by blowing you up with them. So they have their goals. They have their purposes. They have their intentions. And some are willing to go on in prison. They've gone on food fast, trying to achieve a political position. Starved themselves to death. So they were willing to give up their prison food and let somebody else have it in order to fulfill their agenda. And there are those who have put their body on the fire to be burned. But was it out of love for their neighbor? Was it out of love for God? Pretty rarely. Uh, The apostles did. A few have for the right reason. Others have done it for other reasons. But if you don't really love others... What's the whole point? What's the point? Now, he's going to define that love a little bit. He's saying if you don't have it, you don't have anything. Now let's talk about what it is. Verse 4. Love suffers long. long Long-suffering is willing to suffer for a long time. It doesn't have to have immediate gratification. It doesn't have to have what it wants immediately. It is willing to suffer for a long time. Now, why has God called us into His church, into His knowledge, and then made us sit here for 40, 50, 60, 70 years to achieve what we want? Well, part of His character is being willing to suffer a long time. So part of the reason we're still here is so that we learn to suffer and to be willing to put up with suffering for a long, long time in order to achieve our ultimate goal and purpose. Now, he could call us all four days before Christ returns and fill us with his spirit, and we'd quit sinning for four days, and we wouldn't have learned the character we needed. And we have to suffer not only a long time for the goal that is ahead, but we have to suffer with each other. We have to put up with each other. None of us are perfect. None of us get it all right. And therefore, when any of us does not meet the standard of God and His Son, we have to suffer with each other. We have to put up with each other and still love each other. Not be angry, not be hateful, not be mean, not be unforgiving, but to suffer a long time with what? With kindness. He links the long-suffering and kindness together there. Because you can set your jaw and say, All right, I'll suffer with you. I'll suffer along with you. I'll put up with you. But how about being kind at the same time? Can you suffer long? Can we suffer long with each other's problems, our lacks, our weaknesses, and do it kindly, lovingly? Or do we get all stretched out and our knickers in a wad with each other and... Suffer, yes, but not kindly. So when he tells us what love is, Paul wants them to understand. that yes, you have to suffer. And you have to suffer other people and their problems. But you also have to be kind to them. You can't have an attitude. you got to get past your attitudes. Attitude adjustment hour is what this life is all about because that's what our biggest problem is, is our attitudes. It is our attitude that causes us to do what we do, and think what we think, and be what we are. What do you do when you discipline a child? It's his attitude that is the problem. It's not specifically what he's doing, playing with the knobs on the stereo. It's the attitude of rebellion that when you tell him, that is not a toy, do not touch those, he says, I will if I want, and I want to. So there's an attitude of rebellion there, among other things that go with that, selfishness. It's what it's all about. So he has to have his attitude adjusted, where he says, whatever daddy or mommy tell me to do, I will do because I love them, and because I know I'm going to get punished if I don't do what I'm told. And it is through that pain that they learn to love their parents. God chastens every son whom he loves. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't chasten you. And therefore, then, after we get our attitude adjusted and decide I love you more than I love what it is that I'm doing here, then he's kind and loving to us and blesses us. Just as a parent, when he sees that kid's attitude change, uh will pick him up and love him and be kind and gentle with him and show his love and tenderness uh, after the problem is solved. But you can't just be kind and loving to that child all the time without discipline or he'll never learn what love really is. And we're all children of God. So he gives us little children to teach us those things, and then we grow up, and we have to still learn them as adults, it seems. But if we had good parents that taught us, it helps. So, put up with each other and be kind about it. Love doesn't envy. There's no jealousy. There's no envy. Uh, When somebody's blessed, we rejoice with them. When they're in pain, we hurt with them. We're not jealous or envious of anything. If God blesses them, we're thankful that they got blessed. Uh, Maybe we didn't get blessed. What does that do? Human nature causes us to feel jealous or envious, is what it does. So we then have to control that emotion, and we have to go to God and say, help me not be jealous and envious, because that is a work of the flesh. Help me be thankful that somebody is doing well or got blessed. And get the attitude right. It's all about attitude. So love doesn't envy. It's just thankful for Anything that good that happens to anybody love vaunts not itself and is not puffed up. the true love of God does not brag it does not put itself forward it does not make other, uh, make others doesn't say things to make others think we're great that we're Building ourselves up. We don't try to build ourselves up in the eyes of other people. We try to obey God and look good in His eyes. And if we look good in His eyes, then ultimately we'll look good in the eyes of people. Sometimes that's a stiff chore and it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. But eventually it can. It's not puffed up, not vain, not egocentric. There is no room for pride of any kind. We never say, I'm proud. We never say to our children, I'm proud of you. God was well pleased with his son for the sacrifice he made. And he never did swell himself up and say, son, I'm proud of you. He says, I am well pleased with you. There is no room for pride and vanity and ego in God's world. So if we stick to pride, we're in trouble. What's usually offended when we get offended? Our pride. We usually think somebody was putting us down or not saying something good of us, or we misunderstand their motives, or we impute some kind of motive to them that may or may not be true. So we get offended. It hurts our pride. It wounds our ego. Because we were dissed a little bit, or we were put down a little bit. So what if somebody puts you down? You suffer long with it, and you're kind back. We return good for evil. If somebody does say something bad about you, what's your response? Get mad at them? Bite back at them? Not speak to them? Whatever. What's your reaction? should be to return good for evil. If they really did put you down, love them back. That's the Christian response. It's not the human response, and it goes against our human nature, totally and completely against our human nature, to be kind when we're being dissed. We don't like to be put down. We don't like to be minimized. We don't like to be thought little of in any way. And boy can we get upset over the slightest social infraction. They didn't speak to me with a big enough smile. They didn't really mean it because that smile wasn't a big enough one. Or whatever. I mean, it just, it's, the, the things we get upset about are so minuscule sometimes, it's hard to believe. And then if somebody really puts us down, oh my. That may, be, that may take days, weeks, months, or years to ever get over, if indeed we ever get over it. Because that's human nature. We're puffed up, and we have a higher opinion of ourselves is the reason we don't like their opinion of us. Right? Somebody has this opinion of you, and it's lower than the opinion you have of yourself. And therefore you're upset. Do we sometimes have too high an opinion of ourselves and then we let it upset us? The human mind is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Verse 5. Love doesn't behave itself unseemly. Tries to do everything it can in a proper and right and good way, not in ways that are not good, because that creates problems as well. So we should behave properly. Uh, love seeks not her own, is willing to put others first, seeks their good, seeks their des- what they need, what they desire. We're here to make each other happy. As much as we possibly can. That's what we're here for. Serve each other, love each other, make each other happy. Is not easily provoked. There's a lot of scriptures about how easily angered and how wrathful we become. But God is slow to anger, slow to wrath. We can be very, very quick to wrath. How, how quick can your anger come up in your throat? It doesn't take much, boy, and you can just be fighting mad, deeply offended, and within a split second, that can take you over, just like that. So it requires some work. Not easily provoked, not quickly angered. God does not want anger in the universe. Satan is angry. The demons are angry. And people tend to be angry. And Satan and the demons are going away, and all angry people are going away. They will either change and get over their anger, or they're going to the lake of fire and their anger will go with them. Because God is not going to live in an angry universe. He wants it peaceful, loving, kind, and gentle. Is what he wants. And he will achieve that no matter who has to go. Love thinks no evil. There's some some pretty big definitions here that we have to live up to. Love doesn't think evil. Well, you know what I saw so-and-so do. I think this is what they had in mind. I think this is what they're doing. I think this is... That, we have our opinions, and it's real easy to jump to evil conclusions. Because we are so smart, and we know other people so well, and we are so discerning, we're so smart, that we know what they're thinking, and we know what they're doing, and on and on it goes. (coughs) That's why Philippians 4, verse 8 is in there. We're not to think evil. Were are to think positive. But we'll figure out something evil no matter what it seems. That's not the love of God. That's human nature. So this is a tall order he puts out here. It's, it's easy to read over it real quickly and say, well, uh, let's just all love. But love is not that easy. Love is difficult. God's love is extremely difficult because he's defining it here and what it is, so that we have an idea of what it is. We can have emotion, but is it God's love? There's a difference. People have emotions for each other all the time. Parents have emotions for kids. Kids do for parents. But that isn't the love of God. That is emotion toward another human being. (laughs) now can it include God's love it can but by nature it doesn't human nature is not kind it is proud it is puffed up it is impatient and it gets angry easy that's what our nature is so to think no evil remember that thing hear no evil see no evil speak no evil uh... That's what God's saying. Don't think it. If something's evil, uh, God will deal with that person. Uh, God will deal with you if you're evil. We're not to think it. We're to think on the positive things. We're to find good in each other, not evil. It's easy to find evil, isn't it? We think, anyway. But it's hard to find good sometimes. Well, that's what we're supposed to be looking for, is the good. We're not supposed to be looking for a glass half empty. We're supposed to be looking for a glass at least half full. We're supposed to find something good in that glass, that human being, whoever it is. Find some good. Overlook the evil. Put up with it. Deal with it. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity. When there is sin there, sometimes people, boy, they can't wait to go tell somebody else about a sin that they see or that they've discovered. Got to get on the horn right now. Got to get on the phone. Got to go see him, Got to do something. Got to write a letter. Got to text. Got to let somebody know that somebody sinned. That's human nature. doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Part of our rejoicing in iniquity is when we see others do something we think is wrong, uh, that's not what we would do. And since we wouldn't do it, that makes them lesser than we are. And we judge each other by each other. And Paul said, it is not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves. But we constantly compare ourself with others. And our conduct, we compare to theirs. And we like to come out on top in that because we like pride and vanity and ego, and we like to think that we're better than someone else, or smarter, or whatever it is. And therefore, when we see them falter or fail or commit a sin or do something evil or something that looks evil to us, we can rejoice in that. And the fruit of that rejoicing is that we have to go tell somebody and share this gem of gossip about so-and-so because I saw them, or I think they did, or whatever it is. This chapter is about coming to have the character through the Spirit of God and not show human nature human tendencies, to get rid of it. So he's telling them, you're carnal, you're human, you're selfish, and you've got to do this more excellent way. You can seek this, you can seek that, you can try to be this, you can try to be that, but if you don't follow this more excellent way, you got nothing. It's just not there. It ain't nothing. Rejoices in the truth. Now, you can put that with rejoices, not in iniquity, and say rejoices in the truth, and you can say, aha, but that iniquity is true. I saw it happen. That's not what he's saying. In fact, in my margin, uh, it said something different, if I can read it here in this light. It's a, or rejoices with the truth. The truth of God. It's not talking about the truth of somebody's sin. What he's trying to tell you is we don't dote on each other's sin. We don't go for it. We don't look for it. We don't repeat it. Verse 7, it bears all things without giving up. When it says it bears all things, it carries burdens for others. It's able to bear, to take, to carry somebody else's burden. Now, Christ is the greatest example, again, who bears all our burdens. And our burdens are pretty heavy. But his burden is light. He carries us, and to him it's light, it's not heavy. To him he's willing. He loves us so much that he's willing to carry us and to see us through and to work salvation in us. That's how much he cares for us, and so much so that he even died for us. So, when it bears all things, he bore all things for us, and we are to bear each other's burdens as well. Believes all things. In other words, is trusting and able to believe the things that we are taught, to believe the things that we come to understand. doesn't mean we're supposed to believe all evil. We're supposed to believe good. Hope's all things. So do we give up hope on each other? Say, "Eh, write that one off, boy. No, still hopes. see, he's not talking about just our relationship with God here. He's talking to a carnal, unconverted, essentially, congregation who can't get along with each other. So when he says you need to love each other... When he starts defining the things that that love does, he's talking to us in our relationship with each other. That's what this is all about. Hopes for each other and endures all things. We don't give up and say, well, throw that one away. Now, why did Paul boot the guy out there in 1 Corinthians 5? To turn him over to Satan so that he might learn to serve God. In other words, that he might repent and quit doing what it was that he was doing. And when the man quit doing what he was doing, Paul said, hey, love him. He quit doing that. He's doing what's right. Now everything's fine, except him back. And then they said, no. Once you convince us to dump him, we dumped him. Now we're not going to have him back. Well, what is repentance and forgiveness all about? What if God dumped all of us, and then we all straightened up, and He said, "Eh, I'm not going to bother. Forget it. Then what does all of our repentance do? What's it worth? What good is it to fight and strive to live up to what Paul is saying here if God's just going to give up on us? And Paul tells us another place that his... God's love will never depart from us. It will always be there. No matter what. It will always be there. You know what? He is going to be very, very sad when he has to burn some people up in a lake of fire. That is going to hurt him very, very deeply. Because he loves every human being that ever drew breath or should have drawn breath even though it was snuffed out before birth. He loves them all so much That it is going to grieve him to his soul to have to destroy them, ultimately and permanently. He is not angry. He is not vengeful. It's going to hurt him. And the fact that he was willing to send his son to die for all of us, no matter what we've been, shows that. He was willing to give all. There was a certain risk in Christ coming to this earth and living 33 and a half years. There was a certain risk involved. Now, they felt confident that they had it under control and that he could live here for 33 and a half years without sinning. But if there hadn't been any risk, then what's the point? The point is he was tempted in all points like as we are. He just never gave in as we do. But he was tempted to. And Satan recognized that very clearly. So after Christ fasted 40 days, he hit him on all the places that he thought he might trip him up. Just like he does us. He's more successful with us day in and day out. But there had to be a certain amount of risk there, and Satan had to recognize it, and he played on it. Christ was human, and his nature was human. But he fought that nature, and he never gave in to it. What a a remarkable Savior we have. So, love never fails, verse 8. But if there be prophecies... They'll be fulfilled, should really read. Whether there be tongues, they won't be anymore. We'll all have one universal language. We'll all speak the same in the world tomorrow. It won't matter. They'll cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Whatever knowledge we think we're proud of having today, it won't matter then. Uh, we'll all understand perfectly. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part... But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Won't be anymore. We'll all be perfect. We'll all be changed. We'll all be like God. And there won't be any of the human nature. And there won't be any Satan around. So, what's left? Love. That which was short of love, which we've just been discussing, will go away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Had a more, pure, more mature approach. Did adult things. So he's telling us we're children spiritually. Now we need to become spiritual adults and quit acting like a bunch of little quarreling, selfish children. But act like mature, loving adults. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. I'll know everything about God, and He'll know everything about me. He already does, but then I will have been upgraded to be like Him. So we don't see it all clearly. But there's these three things. Faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest is love. Faith will be fulfilled. Hope will be accomplished. Love will be forever and ever more in a peaceful, coordinated, loving kingdom of God, which we are a type of today. So we need to work at living up to The kind of love that God has for us, and he defined it here pretty clearly for us, that it doesn't include our nature. That we have to have the Spirit of God and change our attitudes from what human beings do and look at it spiritually, maturely, as God does. It's a tall order, but that's what he's called us to do.